Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. Joining myself on this episode of the podcast, Stephen is currently on his way back to Colorado, uh, but from Boise, Idaho, or in Boise, Idaho right now, she is the executive director of the IWCN, which is the International Wildlife Coexistence Network. I will be abbreviating that throughout our conversation, is Suzanne Asha Stone. Suzanne, lovely to meet you. How's everything going in Idaho? Uh, we're getting a little bit of snow here, so it's pretty nice. Um, yeah, so it's still winter, very much so. How about you, where you are? It feels like it's springtime, and it's very weird because typically in the February, January, February, March, up here at the ranch, we have snow, it's raining, it's overcast. I think today it's 65 and sunny, so it's just very off. The wolves are a little off. They're sort of like resting more than they would be instead of, you know, playing around. So it's just a, it's been an odd winter, so to speak, up here uh, for sure. But at least somebody's getting snow. So that's good. I'm glad you guys in Idaho are getting snow and feels like winter, which is nice. So I, you've had a, a huge career. I was, I was looking over all, all the, the work that you've done, the work that you're doing currently. And this is three plus decades of being involved, not just with wolves, but with wildlife in general. Take me back to the beginning where you got, how did you get involved in helping wolves or in helping wildlife, I guess, in general, that led you to be part of the wolf reintroduction projects, both in Yellowstone and in central Idaho? Yeah, so that went back to when I was a teenager, actually, and in, in- uh, Texas, and I, uh, I think it was 1979, and I encountered one of the very last of the red wolves in Texas, um, out in the wild, and couldn't understand, you know, it's like, this is not a coyote, this is nothing that I've ever seen before, so I went back home and started trying to do some research on, you know, what, what is this animal, you know, it clearly was not a dog, clearly not a coyote, and wolves were supposed to have been completely extinct from Texas at that time, but I found uh, pictures that looked like it. And then eventually the next year, Gary Lopez came out with his book of wolves and men. And I read that and I was hooked. Um, That was um, really the beginning of this long love affair with wolves. Um, And it's been probably 95% of the work that I've done since that time has been wolf related. Uh, So it's, it's been pretty focused on, on that species. Uh, I grew up in Idaho as well, and when I came back to Idaho in my early 20s, um, there was a a lot of discussion at the time about um, some of the last wolves being killed here. I think we had a few wolves that were stragglers that came through dispersers from Canada, and so it you know it just it just was really clear to me that these animals were the underdog that they had been persecuted to eradication throughout the region. And I just felt compelled at that time that this was my cause. This is, you know, why I was here. Um, and that's, that's been a long time now. <laughs> so that's where it started. What, what kind of support system did you have to make that leap and to make that jump? Were your, was your family on board, friends? What was that like when you, like you said, you have that encounter with that red wolf, or the, the gray wolf, I'm sorry, or the red wolf, I'm sorry. And reading the book, and now you know this is your life's journey. I uh, I think my family thought I was a, kind of a, a bit crazy. They, they thought that um, wolves were that more demonic type of creature. In fact, I even had uh, some pretty religious family in New Mexico that somewhat disowned me because... Uh, at the time, they were, um, you know, hearing things from some of the channels that they were listening to about how wolves were just a, um, you know, a very evil being, and that, uh, you know, it was it was interesting to see that kind of backlash even within my own family. But I I started as an intern. I was at university, and I just applied all of my classwork to wolves. So if I was taking an English course, 
I was dedicating that to writing about wolves. If I was taking a biology course, I was studying wolves. If I was, you know, taking a political science class, then you know it was focused on wolves. So my graduate professor teased me that they shouldn't have given me the degree that they did. They needed to just give me a degree in in, in wolves, and uh, he was pretty pretty close to it. Um, and then when I did my um, graduate work, it was in wildlife conflict uh, and uh, wildlife management. Uh, the conflict resolution was a big part of it. So, you know, knowing that the terrain was um, pretty tough for wolves, that there was a lot of animosity toward the species, a lot of misunderstanding, I, I knew that I needed to have the tools in place to to overcome some of that um, distrust and animosity toward the species. Uh, so that's that's where I focused. And, you know, I, I learned kind of straight from the beginning. You know, I was out on my first howling survey with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director, Dr. Stephen Fritz, um, back in the early, early, I think it was 1990 when we were out uh, looking for wolves. Um, I was working as an intern for the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, mapping all the places where wolves were being sighted occasionally, you know, across the state. And I went out with him on a, we did a flight over central Idaho to look at the habitat. And he was delighted with the amount of habitat here. In fact, he, he chuckled at one point and said, you could hide an entire city of Bigfoot back here. And uh, we have the largest contiguous wilderness area and forested areas uh, outside of Alaska and the state of Idaho. And so it was really perfect habitat. But on our way back, we went through an area where we had received reports of wolves howling um, being seen. And he we did our first um, howling survey together. So he taught me how to to look for wolves, which is thoroughly, you know, through howling for them. Um, and it was my second time to go solo. And I had um, about halfway through my howl, I had rifle bullets whistle zing right over the top of my head. And, you know, it was just a, an awakening. It just there's people shooting blind, blindly through the woods at something that they think is a wolf. Um, uh, I had, you know, a real understanding at that point of, of what I was getting into. Yeah. What was, the, what are the emotions that are running through your, your body and your mind at that point as, like you said, a young intern, a tech in this, especially in Idaho, where there is this, there's really this wildness that's going on and you're in the line of fire, basically, um, as you're starting, you know, just starting out on your journey and starting to study study wolves. I didn't even realize that they were bullets at first because it makes such an interesting, it's like a, it's a whistle zing kind of noise when it goes that close to you. So you don't really hear the pop as much as you hear it kind of just whistle. And so I <laughs> looked at my and, um, Fish and Wildlife Service agent that was with me and his eyes were big. He knew what it was. He dragged me back out to the vehicle. We jumped in the car and we're tooling down the road. And he's telling me, you know, you know, those were bullets. And I'm I'm absorbing that 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 I got that close to having um, uh, been shot. And then he starts laughing, and I'm like, "What in the world are you laughing about?" He goes, "I think I taught you how to howl too well." <laughs> so that was, I mean, it was like <laughs> just the nervous laughter of like, "Oh my gosh, we made it through that!" But wow, you know. That kind of animosity, where you're just shooting blindly at something toward a, you know, a publicly used road, that that is, um, it, you know, it just really shows the sense of of um, fear, I think, and uh, bias toward the species. Um, and after that, I pretty much perfected howling behind trees because I, I wasn't going to get shot at uh, again. Although I've heard a few responses of bullets afterwards, but never that close again. Man. Yeah. You're, so you, I mean, you're dropped right into it. I mean, that's, if that's not an initiation or a, I don't know what else to really say about that, but you're, you're in it right from the get go. So what, where does, where does that take you? You're howling, you, you hear them howl back, you have these bullets flying over your head. So now you know that you're in this project. How far in the future are you when you realize there's going to be these reintroduction projects happening. I think you said this was early 90s, maybe late 80s. So we're talking probably another four or five years down the line where the reintroduction projects are happening both in Yellowstone and I was it the same time in central Idaho was, or was it different? And how were you able to balance that? 
it was the same time in central Idaho. And uh, the first time when I did the, when we had the bullets flying over, thankfully we didn't have wolves howling back at that time. Um, actually it was just even maybe a month later when I was out doing another howling survey and I had the first experience of having wolves howl back. Um, I had been out dozens and dozens and dozens of times, uh, you know, looking for wolves and tracking for them. Uh, but I was out doing a howling survey and I, you know, it's about dusk out in the Frank Church wilderness area. Um, and I howled and, you know, got the typical response, maybe an elk bugling back and a couple birds singing back. And that was it. And then I went back to go set up my camp about a half an hour later, an entire pack of wolves came in and howled back to the spot I had been standing at half an hour earlier. And I mean, that was, that was when I was, I mean, it just, you feel like you're on a different planet. It is such a magical experience and it, the whole woods just lit up with this beautiful chorus. And, you know, I was crying and looking for my tape recorder and trying to, uh, you know, judge where they were, how many were with them. And this was the first known wolves in the state of Idaho since their eradication in the 1930s. And it was before the reintroduction. Uh, and the, um, you know, they howled for a few minutes and then they stopped. And so I just, instinctually went you know that can't be it i i howled back to them and then eventually it was one of the wolves and i just howling back and forth and we just kind of overlapped each other uh, as wolves who often do and one's lowering its voice then another one comes in on top and we just kind of layered howls back and forth to each other for a while and it just was the most amazing experience um and then the wolves gave a, a warning bark the, the two quick barks and I thought, oh, they caught my scent. But about maybe 45 seconds later, um, I heard picked up the hearing of a truck coming down the road. So they had heard the vehicle and did the warning bark and moved off. Um, but, you know, of course, my human hearing is nowhere near as good as theirs. Um, but unfortunately, just a, um, about a week or so later, we found one of the wolves poisoned in that area and never found the other ones. And it was a... a a really nasty poison uh, neurotoxin and uh, we airlifted her out um, to that and we're just too late the, it's a pretty serious neurotoxin and she died within less than 24 hours after us pulling her out of there um, but it you know it, it's like this stuff was from a chemical that's used to treat wheat fields um, to kill grasshoppers and it's extremely deadly to animals and lots of secondary poisoning. So if, you know, human touches it afterwards, they can die. Um, and the um, the wolf just didn't really stand a chance. Uh, it just you know knocked her out. We never found the rest of the wolves, and and it was years later before we started seeing wolf activity again in that area during the wolf reintroduction. That um, you know I was hoping that they would find this pack that some of them would have survived, but um, we never never found evidence so my you know is it was pretty strong um assumed that that pack the entire pack would perish because of the the the, uh, the chemical poison there and there wasn't a wheat field around for 50 miles so it was intentionally laced on the carcass and you know it just shows again the kind of world that they were encountering and have encountered you know since the white europeans came to north america and one of the first things that happened when people started coming to this country from Europe uh, was an encounter with wolves. And one of the first official actions that she that those people did was to set up a bounty on wolves. So, you know, that that animosity carried over with them from Europe and, and has never relented since. I mean, those and those first couple of months or years for you must have been what kind of impact does that make on? A person such as yourself, that this this is the uphill climb or the battle that I'm going to be waging in, probably for the rest of your life. What is? I mean, is, does that run through your mind that early on, or are you just laser focused on? We need to, you know, try and turn some things around, or or meet in the middle and, and get people on board that the, this this isn't maybe the right way to approach this. So I focused a lot on. Uh, 
education during those days. I, I think I quit counting at 50,000 students and adults that I did programs for around the Rockies during that time. And so I was really focused on the, you know, on the students, on the kids, you know, the folks that were not quite so biased and could be reached through you know, science and um, information that wasn't so tailored or impacted by social norms that you know, just people hating wolves. Um, and it was really interesting to see um, just the difference between people who had grown up in a culture where there was a lot of hatred towards wolves uh, and then those who hadn't and just being excited about the species and how cool they are and how much they're like our dogs and, and, you know, some of the same behaviors that we love about our dogs, their bonding, their loyalty to family, um, their intelligence, um, their sweetness, <laughs> their playfulness, you know, all of those things are, are things that you find in wolves as well. And so there was a, a great way of connecting with people at, at that level too. Um, but no, it was tough. It was hard, like during the wolf reintroduction, um, you know, there were signs out saying that people should try to kill all the people involved in the reintroduction, kill all the wolves. Um, there, it was pretty dangerous. And um, they sent a federal agent to come in and help me up in Salmon, Idaho. Um, when I, we were waiting for the wolves to come in and uh, at first I thought he was one of the bad guys and he kind of scared me. He, he waited to the end of the meeting to come up and tell me who he was. And he was dressed in black and he had a big heavy Bible looking thing underneath his hand that it, it looked like it was too heavy for a book, you know? So I was a little bit worried that he was going to be um, somebody that could potentially be very dangerous turned out that he was a fish and wildlife service law enforcement agent. And they came up and afterwards and introduced himself. And once I started breathing again, normally, <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, great to have him there. And we ended up securing the wolves um, overnight because there was a federal injunction that made us so that we couldn't release the wolves right away. And, and the tensions were just growing exponentially in town. And so we stayed up with the, the wolves and, and posted, you know, we had guards and stuff there and, and then the next day, we had a convoy of folks going out to release the wolves. Um, it was too stormy to to really go in, go in with an airplane, so uh, we went took them into the backcountry in the back of um, of trucks. And I remember the officer asked me, "He's like, you really don't want to like ride with me, do you?" And because he was in the front vehicle, he goes, "You know, if we run into an ambush, I'll be the one, you know, getting shot at." You know? So you'll be sitting up there with me. And I looked back at the vehicles behind us and I knew that, you know, he was the only one that had a gun to shoot back with. So I was going to stick pretty close to him. Um, and, uh, but we didn't encounter anything. It was just at that time, probably just a lot of uh, local rumors going on. And we were able to safely let those wolves go uh, the first year. The second year I was on the ground in Canada in Port St. James and up there helping the capture of the wolves and, and then bringing back and releasing them in Idaho as well. So, and it all happened at the same time, the Yellowstone Wolves. Yellowstone became, you know, was the real celebrity. Uh, you know, they really captured um, the American people's attention. So Idaho was, um, most people didn't know about the Idaho Wolf reintroduction at the time, but you could fit five Yellowstones into the wilderness area here in Idaho. Um, it, it's the best habitat for wolves outside of Colorado in the Western United States. And uh, unfortunately, it's also surrounded by people that grew up fearing and hating wolves. It's so interesting you bring that up that I, I was just thinking this is that Yellowstone, like you said, is the it's the reintroduction that everyone talks about. And there are reintroductions in different places. And now that Colorado has passed the prop right now for to put in place a reintroduction plan I think by 2023 was what I heard or read about. So in a couple of years, obviously it's not just we're going to drop the wolves in your backyard. It's there's like Idaho, like Yellowstone, there has to be a plan put in place of how they're going to do it. It's very interesting to hear you both for your personal experience and just the way that things were received in a different reintroduction site you know, as compared to, like I say, Yellowstone, because you, everybody thinks 
not, I don't know if everyone believes, but for the most part, they feel that maybe most people are on board. It's, you know, there's not that much pressure because it's a national park, I guess, in terms of releasing, you know, wolves or any animals in there because it should be protected. You guys, on the other hand, are releasing basically, like you say, in the backcountry. And it's, you know, you know, what is, what is that like? Was it like that? How many years did the reintroduction go on? Because you, you mentioned that there was year one and then year two. So how many years was the Idaho reintroduction? Was it sort of a phase in for a couple of years? How did that go? Yes. Yeah, so the, the Yellowstone Idaho wolf reintroduction was meant to go for three years in total. That was the, the plan. And then, so they, the first year um, there were uh, wolves released in Idaho. I think there were 14 in all and maybe 19 in Yellowstone. Not many um, the first year. It was, um, you know, basically facing some of the issues of doing something for the first time. So they, they got a handful of wolves from Alberta and, and then released uh, about almost half to Idaho and the other half to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, it was not enough to secure a minimum viable population. Um, you know, at least the, the, uh, the founding members that would create that population. So it was supposed to go on for three years. And then right before the second year of the reintroduction, Western senators, um, through the appropriations packaging, removed all of the funding for the federal wolf reintroduction that year. So it almost didn't happen the second year, which meant that it could have, you know, ended up failing entirely. And I got a call from Ed Bangs, who is the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, wolf coordinator for the entire region, telling me that, you know, essentially this might be over. You know, we, we just had all of our funding cut, which was about $200,000 to do the, the reintroduction mechanics of it, the logistics of it, the helicopters, the movement, the field station, the people to be there, all of that. And so I got permission from my board of directors at the time I was working for um, a wolf education center to use our most um, dated, oldest <laughs> membership um, group. It was about 2,000 people that hadn't responded in a long time. And they said, yeah, you can have that, that mailing list. And I was allow- allowed a, one paper, uh, front and back. And so I wrote an appeal letter that went out to those 2,000 people. And it was them that funded the second year of reintroduction because within just a few weeks, we were getting... Uh, I mean, just hundreds of letters coming in, all with checks. And so they replaced close to, I think it ended up being a little bit more than half of the money that we needed or that was allocated through appropriations. And then the rest of it came from people who donated their time um, and equipment, you know, all of that. So the second year was paid for directly by the American people. And it was incredible to see that kind of response. I was able to call Ed back and say, Tell me again how much the helicopters are, because I think I think we got it. <laughs> and you know, and then go to British Columbia with an American Express that had that much money behind it. I mean, we we paid for everything um, through those donations. So it was it was remarkable seeing that happen, and, and just knowing it was everything from you know kids and their grandmothers going out with um, collecting pop bottles to I think our biggest check was ten thousand dollars from a machine shop in New York. And you know everything in between, so it's yeah, it's pretty amazing. But that was enough to secure the population. Once we did the second year, there wasn't a need for a third year, and uh, and that's that's where it all started for Yellowstone and Idaho. Um, since that time, of course, the Idaho wolves they became the largest population subpopulation of wolves in the Western United States. We we got close to about two thousand wolves in the state at one point. And typically Yellowstone has about what 200, I think kind of around their, their max, uh, maybe up to 300. You know, they, they just don't have the amount of habitat that, that Idaho has. Uh, but out of that population that built in Idaho, then it moved to Oregon, uh, eventually to California, to Washington state. So as wolves have expanded West, it's, it's been because of the Idaho wolf reintroduction pretty exciting stuff to see that happen, especially yeah. in one lifetime well, yeah, to see it go from no wolves to skin going across the country. Yeah. Man, that is incredible. It's amazing to see what a community can do when it's, when it's called to action. I, I find that 
so powerful. And, and we see it here with us as a, as a nonprofit, just that it's amazing when you put the call out and there are, there are people, there are individuals, there are groups, there are shops, there are companies that just are called to act and they do it. And it's, it's phenomenal to see. And I, th- this is all information I, I wasn't aware of. And I, I love this part of it. And I, I, I love that this is really the, the epicenter really of the Western you know, repopulation is, is Idaho. Because I've been speaking with, uh, we spoke. I spoke with Leo Leckie, uh, who was he's part of our organization. Uh, he was in the Yellowstone reintroduction, and we were discussing the pack that's in California now. So uh, I would imagine the pack that's in that north, that northeast corner, or that northeast portion, probably came from Idaho. And it's just fascinating to see over twenty five years if the wild is, you know reintroduces itself essentially with the help of with with you guys how they've really crossed the landscape and repopulated to the point that of where they are it's just it's fascinating to hear this and this is phenomenal so what did you do what was your role there were you were you just not just <laughs> apologize were you a, a tech or or an, like where where were you at that point roughly five or six years, like as this was going on, because in the early nineties, you're an intern. Where did you, where were you sitting in when the introduction was actually happening? I was, I was here in Idaho for the first one. So I was up on the ground waiting for the wolves to come in, preparing the site there for transferring the wolves to the backcountry. Uh, and so I was, I was on the ground here in Idaho for the first one. The second one, I was up in Canada for that one and, uh, and running the, helping run the field station there um, and providing, you know, the support materials, equipment, medicine, helicopters, everything through the donations that we received um, from the American people for that reintroduction. And then I came down with the last of the wolves that we were shipping down to Idaho and Yellowstone and was on the ground in time to release the last of the Idaho wolves into the Frank church really close. I mean, we drove right over the spot that I had heard the wolves howling when I was an intern. So it was, it was pretty remarkable to be coming in, releasing wolves there and knowing that this was the place that wolves had chosen to be and, and that it was going to be again, home to wolves once more. So it was, uh, that was 1995, 1996. And then, um, after that, I, um, went to work for one of the national environmental groups and my job was essentially Idaho and Colorado wolves so I was out planting seeds about bringing wolves back to Colorado that was um, a big part of the work that I was doing early on so I was working with the folks at Sanapu and others trying to get um, people to you know consider Colorado has the best habitat for wolves in the western United States bar none you could take the entire northern Rockies and we still could not match the habitat that one state Colorado has. So um, seeing the wolves coming back to Colorado is also pretty much a dream come true to see that that actually happened. Um, I went, I lived in Crested Butte when I was a kid. I, you know, I, the Colorado's been my stomping grounds for a while and love the state. And of course it makes sense to bring them back because it is just some of the best habitat and they need it. You know, they you need to have the balance of the native predators on the ground in order that the ungulate populations also remain healthy over time. That's that's you know why they are or have been. Um, so wolves play an essential role in their habitat, and that is one that uh, is sorely lacking in Colorado right now. So it's really about restoring the uh, health of that ecosystem by bringing wolves back as well. Uh, but then my work focused it changed dramatically. So my family's background, uh, folks you know that were in ranching and stuff growing up in Texas um, and and then doing my degree in conflict management, I went in right away to tackling the, the issues with livestock depredations. Um, I covered the compensation program for the Northern Rockies. So I oversaw the payments of over $1 million worth of uh, compensation to ranchers for livestock losses to wolves. And as I was working with them, I was starting to, you know, really ask a lot of questions about, well, what triggered this? You know, what do you think went, caused wolves to go from not paying attention to your herd to suddenly killing, you know, sheep or cows in, in this area. 
And we learned a lot together with the ranching community, just, you know, what, what were those triggers? And then the next part of that was just a natural progression to, well, what could have prevented that from happening? Um, so all of that laid the groundwork for where I'm at today with the uh, International Wildlife Coexistence Network, because we are focused on helping people learn how to work with nature instead of against her and to prevent those big conflicts from happening by putting mechanisms into place that mimic nature and help communities live with native wildlife uh, without the massive conflicts. And uh, part of that was, um, I was the founder, of, co-founder of the um, uh, Wood River Wolf Project in central Idaho, where we took one of the largest sheep populations, domestic sheep on public lands, anywhere in the Western United States, and uh, which was overlapping with a, a wild population of wolves in a very rugged area. We have about 20 to 25,000 sheep in our project area every year. And we're going into year 14. Um, and out of that 20 to 25,000 sheep we have every year, about five of them get killed by wolves. So it's one of the lowest loss rates of livestock to wolves anywhere in the Western United States, anywhere in the world, actually. And, um, you know, it just, we're spending less money than what has been used to control wolves through lethal means. Uh, we're losing less livestock and much more successful at, at keeping those numbers down than the traditional archaic uh, lethal control measures that are often ad um, adopted uh, when there's conflict. And so, you know, it's kind of a win for the community. It's a win for the ranchers and it's a win for the wolves. And we're, we're duplicating that and working with partners who are also doing this with lions in Africa and snow leopards in Nepal and, you know, just critters um, all over the place. We even... Uh, have a new partner that's working on koala in uh, Australia. And we wouldn't think that there would be conflict between people and koala, but you know, with development and people expanding across the landscape, um, and of course climate issues putting so much pressure on both, it, you know, it, there's conflict there as well. So it is, um, it's a way of helping to save the planet. And you went through. I had I had questions, and I'm like, oh, she ticked off that one. Oh, she got that question. <laughs> you just made like. Everything that you, it was, it was great. No, I, I, it's like you're, you're so seamless with this. Cause I, I wanted to jump, I wanted to get into the Wood River Wolf Project. Cause I, like you said, your numbers are, are truly astounding. And really it's, it's, I'm sure it's a testament to the hard work that you have all done. And, and I mean, you laid it out. What are the, what are the, the techniques and what are the things that you, your group, the ranchers are, are doing non-lethally to make sure that there's this coexistence happening. Because if it's, it, clearly it's a model that works. As you said, it's being used for different predator uh, prey, prey around the world. So what are the main types of techniques that are being used specifically in the Wood River Wolf Project that, uh, that has made it this successful going on? Like you said, it's 14th year and how that's impacting, you know, the ranching community in Idaho. Yes. And I, I, I want to make sure that I don't overstate their enthusiasm for wolves because this isn't like they're excited about having wolves on the landscape. <laughs> There's most of the producers we work with would in a heartbeat make the vote that we don't have wolves at all. So, you know, it's not like um, there's a lot of um, excitement about using these methods and tools. It's just that it is the most practical. And when you get down to it, if ranchers are in the business as a business, you know, they want to be economically viable, then these methods really appeal to them. Um, it better protects their livestock. And it's things like um, there's, there's a, kind of a wide range of things. It depends on the type of terrain you're in, the type of livestock you're trying to protect, and even the time of year it might be. So it, you know, I can tell you what some of the tools are. But how you apply them is is really a, a quite a science at this point, um, and we really encourage people to work with those who know how to use these tools, how to implement them appropriately. Because like any type of tool, if you use it in the wrong situation, it's not going to work, and and then people lose confidence in them. So um, things like reducing um, carcass pits, we've seen like in Oregon the very first depredation that occurred the very biggest you know first big conflicts were because there were carcass pits out and, and the carcass pits were livestock that had been dumped into this you know basically um, uh, dumping grounds 
uh, and and then uh, they build up over time. Wolves have an incredibly sophisticated sense of smell, so they can detect um, dead animals scav- to scavenge from miles away. I mean, they're not just hunters, right? They're they're scavengers as well. And the wolves did smell this, uh, probably apparently about ten miles away. They picked up on it, came out of the mountains, and then investigated the huge carcass pit with hundreds of dead livestock in it and then noticed that next door was a, uh, a lambing operation with fresh spring lambs and they made the same equation that we did or would in that situation <laughs> you know it's like you take either this maggoty old pile of bones or a fresh spring lamb and they jumped the fence and that was the first depredation that occurred in Oregon that uh uh, it was simply because of the carcass pit being there. The wolves would never have been on that ground otherwise. Um, we use different types of fencing, different types of um, lights. Uh, we have one of our favorites is the thing called fox lights out of uh, Australia. Uh, I brought them back in the big giant duffel bag about eight, eight or nine years ago um, from Australia. And they had not been tested or used in North America at all at that time. So we were the first ones to try them on the ground. And the fox lights are brilliant because they come on at dusk. Um, they have a very irregular um, light, um, uh, I don't want to say pattern, but sequence. And so they would go from different colors, uh, different sequences, um, different timing on how the sequences would go. And if you looked at them from across a field or a, you know, a pasture or a valley, it looked like someone walking around in the woods with a, a flashlight. And, and, you know, that's what you want wolves to think is that there's humans present, humans are being wary, there's a sense of risk that goes along with that, and wolves do not like risk. Um, they are, you know, risk averse as they can be. Um, then livestock guardian dogs are a great, an old, ancient way of using uh, a deterrent. Uh, the dogs themselves can be an actual attractant, though, if you use them in the springtime, because wolves don't know that they're dogs. They think they're just funny looking wolves. And so in the springtime, uh, strange wolves are the biggest threat to their pups. And wolves are way more aggressive about protecting their pups than anything else. I mean, that is, that's family. And uh, they are you know, pretty dedicated to, to caring for those and protecting their young. So if strange wolves come into the area, there's often a fight because the wolves don't want their pups jeopardized. So we had to learn that, that, you know, if you're going to use dogs, be very careful about using them anywhere near a wolf den. Avoid it if you can. And if you can't, then make sure you have a lot of other deterrents in place that help protect the dogs as well. Other times of year, it's, it's a lot safer. But, you know, for the dogs that time of year, it really sets them up to fail uh, because the wolves feel so strongly protective of their young. Um, yeah, just, you know, a wide range of things. I've, I'll try any tool <laughs> if it's going to work. And proof of that is a few years ago, I finally found the perfect situation to try the most weird tool I've ever thought of. And that is, you know, in the um, like used car lots, the, the big tube guys that flop around and yeah. have the air flowing through them and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I finally got a situation over in Northeastern Oregon a few years ago where I got to try that one. And it was a brilliant tool for that particular um, spot. I don't think wolves ever came back to that neighborhood again <laughs> after they got the scare of their lives coming over the hill and seeing that thing waving around up in the, uh, up in the trees and stuff. And so, um, but you know, that's, that's a tool that there's very few places you can use them, but in the right situation, it's a great tool. Um, they're even trying that one with uh, dingo right now uh, in Australia. So they've adapted to use that one there. Uh, I'd be interested to see how that works for dingo. Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, giving wolves a sense of risk and, and then trying not to attract them um, by providing dead or dying livestock and, and situations that normally they're supposed to fill in the wild because in the wild, that's their job. They're supposed to call the animals that are dead or dying and, um, and then help reduce the, the weaker animals out of the herds. Uh, that's why it's such a good gift for the herds because it helps call out those animals and then eventually you know, over time it makes the herds stronger um, over the long term. Man, that those are those tools are incredible. I, I would have never 
thought the you know the wacky waving inflatable tube guy, but that it makes sense. Like you said, it's it's all about risk and reward for for wolves. Really, for any predator out in the wild, it, they want the most. They want to be able to get to their prey or get to that food as easily and without putting themselves in danger as possible. And that's that's the way that they would do it. I, what makes in in the time that this has been going on for almost you know 14 years have you seen has there been a shift with ranching and ranchers to these methods and sort of sort of a middle ground from where you started because i know when we sp- i spoke with a few biologists earlier when we when we started the podcast the you know Dr. Jim Halfpenny and um you know the Nathan Varleys and all the individuals in Yellowstone. And what's, what's fascinating to me, and I, I don't want to miss, I don't want to misquote, but one, somebody said that the ranchers really are the ones that are holding the West and, and keeping it wild in, in a sense. Do you feel that there's become some common ground in, in, the, in the way that the techniques you guys are using to have this coexistence happen and that things are moving more towards the middle as opposed to breaking out towards the extremes in terms of anti-wolf and and pro-wolf? You know, it it seemed that it was going in that direction for quite some time. Uh, Ranchers at the very beginning were the most opposed to having wolves come back in Yellowstone and and in Idaho. That if you went to any of the meetings in the West before the reintroduction in those years, just prior to to the reintroduction, the rooms would be absolutely filled with with ranchers. It was not very common to see hunters there. It was really the ranching community. And then that completely changed um, as we saw these new um, hunting groups start to emerge that were anti-predator and a lot of them very anti-wolf. And so the rhetoric started going the other direction, uh, really going back toward vehemently hating wolves and uh, wanting to kill them as many as they could. And there was so much mis- misinformation that was being you know, um, sent out uh, and, and people claiming that it was true. Things like um, that we'd brought the wrong wolves in. That was one that was really popular. Um, still is. I occasionally hear that one. And it's like, you know, you guys haven't quite done your math because, you know, wolves can move easily 30 to 40 miles, maybe 50 miles a day um, by foot. And where we took them from, wolves have already been walking on their own from the parts in British Columbia and Alberta where where we brought them from down into central Idaho and back on their own. I mean, there's there's no barrier there. So, you know, they would call them Canadian wolves, but there's no such thing as a Canadian wolf. They were wolves predate U.S. and Canada borders. (laughs) So, you know, but it was just this rumor that people really start to believe is fact. And beyond that, they you know, were always saying that they were killing all of the elk in Yellowstone or all the elk, you know, in Idaho. And, you know, it's just, um, it's like telling people that the sky is not blue anymore or that isn't as blue as it used to be. Now it's very hard to prove unless you really dig down and, and get into the, the facts of, you know, how many elk are there? We have, at least 10,000 more elk on the ground in Idaho today than we did when wolves were reintroduced, period. You can't debate that. It is just, those are the numbers. And the elk are doing fine throughout most of the state. The places where they're not doing well, they weren't doing well before wolves got here. So, you know, there's a lot of scapegoating of wolves that goes on for very little justification on the factual side. Most of it's misinformation. And yet misinformation becomes part of the cultural norm once people have heard it often enough. Uh, I mean, we even had a a state resolution passed here about a decade ago where our legislators claimed that people were not safe to go out and mow their yards or pick berries because because of wolves being out, um, being here in the state. And it's like, really? Mowing lawn? (laughs) I mean, you know, Wolves have never attacked a person in the state of Idaho in the 25 years or so that they've been back. And they rarely, it's rare for people to even see them. Um, it's not that they can't hurt a person, but they, I mean, you look at the um, 
at the at the record where you know humans have killed millions of them, and we know of what less than five people I think in total that have been hurt or killed by wolves, and and it's like you know, but that scapegoating, that blaming, it goes to help serve that cause of, of creating this anti-wolf movement, and it's led to these new groups like the um, um, wildlife. Um, no, I can't even think of their name. That's how blocked it is. Sorry, but uh, groups supported by like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and others where they are, you know, paying for bounties to kill more and more and more wolves. Um, and now we're seeing a real change where it's gone back the other way to where, you know, there's a lot more pressure to do more trapping of wolves, more snaring. Um, I, I won't be surprised to see poisoning and, and they want to kill them 20, 12 months a year, you know. 365 days um they're allowed to kill them in den sites with you know moms and their pups right now in idaho um there's just no stopping and it's it's like it's going back to that same mentality that eradicated wolves from the west and some of it has to be triggered by what's going on nationally as well uh, that there's so much polarization and people resistant to facts and science but it's it's a challenge it's um it's tough to see it going back this way so how do you take that challenge on as an individual and also as you know your colleagues your the people that you work with what are, what are the what's the information that you're trying to put out into the public record that people can look at and show your the side of I, I want to say just the science and the information that's accurate so that people can all look at it and and get a good gauge as to, like if they were to look up the Wood River Wolf Project, they would see by the numbers, and I'm sure speaking with some of the rancher, ranchers that you work with, they would see how this has progressed over 14 years. So what's the information that you were all trying to get out into the public and to maybe some of these groups so that they can see how things are actually working um, out out there as you see it. You know, it's strange, but it seems like there's a lot of um, skepticism of, of science, of facts. Um, and, you know, people are more likely now, I think, to trust their emotions and their biases uh, over that over you know presentation of information so it's it's very difficult to change people's minds based on just a you know a well-done study um or just the numbers and i you know that's concerning at so many different levels because you know, it also impacts decisions people make regarding medicine education you know all of that um and it's to the detriment of our society that that phenomenon is really growing um so it's difficult to know how to approach it and you know what we've done is join coalitions of organizations working together to um, provide information to those who can still listen and will still listen to science and you know we we banded together with scientists around the world who are working out in the field um, not all cultures are going through this. This seems to be a pretty strongly American, um, you know, situation that we're going through right now, and it it, it, it does happen in other places. But it's it is um, it's particularly um, you know just significant you know, as to what's happening here in in our country and how much it affects what's going on on the ground, even in, you know even for creatures like wolves, right? So we just saw. Um, a few about a week or so ago, a litigation put forth by a group funded by um, Coke Industry over in Wisconsin, uh, supporting a hunting organization to force the state of Wisconsin to start a hunting and trapping season on wolves right now. Despite the state saying no, we're going to listen to the tribal folks here in our community. We're going to hold off and put together, you know, a, a good plan before we jump into this. But you know, it's being driven now by people who are just absolutely fanatic and trying to get out and start killing wolves. Um, and they, they are in court right now. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's just really interesting 
and it seems like wolves bring out either the best in people or the absolute worst. And there's really not a middle ground in between. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things like that are, that are occurring politically in our country right now. But it's been that way with wolves for decades. Um, it's just now getting just wrapped up into this other um, you know, social stress that's going on within our societies. But it's hard to know. Um, so we've focused on things like what can we do? You know, what can we do well? We know we can do things well that are providing solutions to potential conflicts to pe- be able to help people avoid having conflicts with wolves, having conflicts with lions and bears and um, other wildlife. So the more we can do to help communities learn how to adapt to living with nature and show them ways that benefit the community and nature at the same time, the more we can heal that relationship that people have with nature. Um, because a lot of people are getting very um, separated from um, from nature and period. And they just don't have that relationship so much as, as we used to have um, as we see technology grow and people living in cities and things. So helping to, you know, just restore that respect, uh, love for nature, empathy for animals, and understanding the value of having that biodiversity and how important that is to our own health, our own um, economies, um, that, you know, this is the air we breathe, the water we drink, um, the food we eat. And uh, if we don't treat the planet well, and that includes all of these species, that they will disappear and um, we will eventually along with them. And it is it is a um, big wake up call, I hope, this year for people as we're going through this pandemic of you know, these kinds of systems are not sustainable. Um, they are ones that are going to cause a more and more devastation to um, people and to wildlife and the planet. And we have to find a better way to move forward. And that's, we're calling it our, coexistence consciousness that we are asking people to take a pledge make that a personal thing for themselves in their own lives um, to engage at the local level you know whether it's in your backyard or the the rural community or the city there's things that everyone can do to help change that relationship to change that paradigm that we're in of our relationship with nature and that's that's where we're focused right now yeah, I, I was going to say that this sounds exactly what I would imagine the IWCN is all about, and what you're, what you guys are about the the, co- the the International Wildlife Coexistence Network, right? This, these are the. It seems like you you laid out the pillars of what you're trying to achieve globally, and it's amazing. A lot of the, a lot of what you just uh, just said. It factors into some of the things that we do up here at Wolf Connection where people come up and they they meet these wolves, they meet these wolf dogs and and they're out in nature sometimes for the first time in weeks or months because of the pandemic. And it just really is this reconnect. It, it's, a, it's a disconnect from what's going on and a reconnection of how they can feel, like you say, back in nature, tuning back in, maybe feeling something they haven't felt in a while. And, and it's not, it's not, it doesn't happen for everyone, but it's, it's a way, I think, to get back to where we were before, like you said, the technology and things of that sort. And it's a very good, it's a great deal for me. When I come up here, it, it's, I can disconnect from everything and just focus on nature and being here with, with these awesome wolves and, and having myself a different type of a day than I would normally. So what, was I accurate in what, you're, what I was saying about the IWCN, that that's basically what you guys are, are trying to do is put these pillars and these types of uh, programs or these types of, this type of thinking out globally to sort of help these, these communities around the world? We are, and it's really fun because, you know, as we were working on, like the Wood River Wolf Project. And I'm talking about myself right now, but you know, recognizing that this is a, a team effort. I've got so many great people that I get to work with and, and they're just phenomenal. And um, but you know, we I would run into other practitioners in the non-lethal um, proactive coexistence work around the world. And none of us had support 
tools. We didn't know what we were doing really to start off with. We were pioneering basically a new field. We didn't have um, a lot of advice on what protocols to use, how to use them, how long to use them. You know, we found out a lot of this stuff on our own. So unfortunately, a lot of projects would start and then fail because they didn't have, you know, some kind of support base to help them get through some of the obstacles that that all of us have encountered. And that was heartbreaking. And so, you know, this was the idea kind of noodling around in the back of my head for such a long time of like, why don't we have a way of supporting all these different people and, and projects and communities around the world? And that's that's where the IWCN really, you know, just seeing how we can bring all these people together. And so we have this huge interdisciplinary team of people who are volunteering from the science, academics, economics, finance, wildlife biology, education, government, um, international policy. There's people who are extremely into the um, new technologies in the field. They're developing things in AI and all kinds of new tools that are amazing. We have livestock guardian dog, you know, very long-term people that have been working in the field of livestock guardian dogs and it's coming from generations of people who have. So, you know, thousands of years of experience coming through them and agriculture. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. And so we are able to help provide that kind of interdisciplinary support um, for projects. And we have a ton of that information up on our website right now. I think we have the largest um, database of coexistence research um, that I've ever seen is on there now. And then, you know, we're just, we're just getting started. So I can't wait to see where we are a year from now or five years from now and, um, and how many people that we get to reach out to and how many projects we get to help support. Yeah. You guys, I, I was checking out the website for the last couple of days and uh, just before I, we, we started and it's, it's such a wealth of information and it really, from what it sounds like from you is you've, for the IWCN, you found your pack almost in a way, right? You've you formed your own sort of wolf pack of these wonderful individuals and groups and people working in all these different spaces that are coming together to make this function and become something that can can go worldwide and and affect global change. Yeah, it's stunning, and it's so. You know, you just get encouragement every morning. You hit the ground, and there's a new project. There's a you know, new technique. People are sharing information. They're not territorial with it. They want to to share because, you know, the more that we can help each other, the more this becomes a, a true shift in paradigm of of how we, what our relationship, how we define our relationship with nature, with wildlife, and and we are you know, eager to see where this is going to take us. And uh, I, I love this work. It's, you know, it, that's the part of it that is just such a reward to be able to work with people who have such passion um, and such love for the land and, and for the wildlife that are there and, um, and so willing to give, um, you know, that they're just terrific people to work with. Could you have imagined at 17 when you read that book and when you saw that wolf, that this is where you'd be sitting right now? I, you know, it really is a dream coming true. And I, I tried for a few years to get other groups to take this on, you know, cause I thought, you know, it doesn't make sense to start a new group. Right. Um, yeah, there's so many groups out there and I could just, I couldn't, everybody thought it was a great idea, but they, you know, they were just really not ready to, to tackle it. And once I started and just said, okay, we're going to do this. You know, I called all of my friends that are in wildlife science and, and all the different areas that we needed and just what do you think would you be willing to do something like this every single person I talked to was like I'm in I am in all the way you know (laughs) just show us where to go from here and you know it was the easiest thing I've ever done um and I, I just love it it's it's just such an honor to be able to work in this in this type of uh environment and with these kind of people um so yeah I hope everyone <laughs> has a job they love as much. Yeah, I I hear that. And it's 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 a huge kudos to you for spearheading so many of these things and being such an integral part of really the wolf community and and really the global community as well. 
just by speaking with you today and understanding more about what the IWCN does and and really going into depth about the Idaho wolf reintroduction introduction that was this was so fascinating and so, such an informative conversation i i have one last thing that i i want to ask you and then i i'd love to have you uh promote any social media websites and things like that but my my final question to you Suzanne is when you hear the word wolf what is something that comes to mind? I think it's you know, first thing I thought of was the wolf named Chat Chat, um, which in Nez Perce means older brother. And he was one of the first four wolves that we um, released in Idaho in 1995. He was one of the wolves that was stuck in the warehouse with me and the, uh, and the officers when we thought we might not be able to release these wolves. He was also the first wolf that I've ever, the first wild wolf that I ever locked eyes with. Uh, I was coming to check on the wolves and, and walked up to about four feet away from his cage. Uh, he was one of them in a travel kennel that we were moving them with. And um, so he didn't have a lot of space. He was staring out the, the door, the front door of the cage. And, um, and I stood there and looked at him and just wanted to type, assure those wolves that you know, we, we got you, you know, it's going to be okay. And I just remember looking, he had this kind of greenish colored eyes. Um, and I, it felt like locking eyes was something that was so much more intelligent. Um, so timeless, you know, this ancient kind of power. I, and just felt like he, he looked through me rather than you know, just at me, like he could see not just me, but like all of my ancestors. You know? And uh, I did, did not expect it. I've never felt that in an animal before. Um, you know, it, just this presence um, of raw, natural power. And so when I think of wolf, you know, I, I think of something that is an incredibly powerful, sacred animal that. Um, has shown us probably more about ourselves than pretty much any other animal uh, that we've shared the planet with. And not all of it is light, a lot of it's dark, but it's stuff that we have to deal with uh, in order to become better. Um, If we ever raise to that elevation of having that one spirit with nature, then um, I'll be proud of our race. But uh, we have a ways to go. Beautiful. I, I love that. Please tell everybody where they can visit, uh, both on social media, on your, any website, uh, obviously the IWCN website. Uh, there's a ton of information there, but please go ahead and uh, give people uh, the places where they can find the work that you're doing um, and that they can check up on things that are going on. Yeah. Yeah, you can come take the pledge on our website. So check that out. There's lots of resources there, but we really encourage people to take this on so that, you know, it's all of us that are starting this movement um, and we want to do it together. And so that's wildlifecoexistence.org. And that's the access for there. There's a video on there that talks a little bit more about who we are and vision. Um, It's about five minutes long on the front page. And then, of course, we're on Facebook and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and, um, you know, just about everywhere. And just anytime people want to reach out, uh, we're happy. Uh, if you want to volunteer as an expert, we, uh, we have a huge field of interdisciplinary spots. Um, and if you're interested in working on a project, you know, maybe one around the world somewhere, um, tell us what you're interested in and what skills that you're bringing. And uh, we're hoping to engage as many people as we can. So we'd love to have folks um, reach out to us. Yeah, just touch on that really quick. I, I totally forgot about that. How can people get involved? What's what's the easiest way for them to get in touch with the organization and if they're interested in, in helping out? So if you go to our website, it's wildlifecoexistence.org. And then um, there's a tab that says get involved. And engage as an expert is a sub uh, tab underneath that. So you can go through there and just fill out the form, uh, tell us what you want to do, 
and uh, what your interests are. Uh, and we'll be back in touch with you. Awesome. That's tremendous. Suzanne Asha Stone, so such a pleasure to meet you. Love this conversation. You are welcome back anytime. Uh, if there's any new developments on, you know, if there's any new information, especially with moving forward in the Colorado wolf reintroduction, you are always welcome. And uh, I'd love to have the conversation again with you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and letting everyone hear your stories. Thanks for having me. It was really nice to be able to meet you and I look forward to connecting again. Absolutely. Howls to everyone out there and we will speak with you next time. Bye everybody. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the donate tab and find out more information. <laughs>